I'm Riaz Akbat. It's Wednesday the 3rd of March and this is Guardian Daily. Today, with the BBC looking at closing radio stations and cutting its website to save money, we look at what those cutbacks would mean for the corporation's staff and audiences. By doing it now, the BBC can be the master of its own destiny in that it can cut the services that it wants to in the BBC Asian Network and Six Music have very small audiences relative to the other BBC radio networks. A group of high-flying businessmen plan a takeover of debt-ridden Manchester United. Is football fan power in the ascendancy? But they're always going to make that money. The, the argument of the fans is that money is not being put to good use at the moment because that money is going to service the Glazers' debt rather than going back into the team or helping keep ticket prices down. Fifty years after the first US presidential debate was aired across the Atlantic, the British electorate will have a chance to grill Brown, Cameron and Clegg in a series of live televised debates. The expectation is that David Cameron will do, will do brilliantly. The expectation is that Gordon Brown might have another one of those great YouTube moments. But because that's the expectation, if David Cameron comes in slightly below that and Gordon Brown comes in slightly above that, well, then maybe we'll say, didn't Gordon Brown do well? So it's quite difficult to tell how it'll work out. Zoolander, the film that launched a thousand quotes, is making a return to the big screen. Guardian film writer Zan Brooks gives us his take. Wasn't there a film about a comedy about fashion out last year, um, Bruno, which seemed to kind of lampoon it? So my suspicion is maybe that it's trying to jump on, on Bruno's catwalk a little bit. We begin today with the BBC and its plans to close radio stations, scale back its website and curb spending in other areas. Before we talk with The Guardian's Stephen Brooke about the whys and wherefores of this belt-tightening exercise, let's hear what the licence fee-paying public has to say about the corporation. I think it's fantastic, really. I mean, I think the best thing that came out of it, really, is David Attenborough. I was going to ask you, what have you really enjoyed watching or listening to over the last couple of years? Um, well, yeah, David Attenborough has to be the best thing, really. He's very informational and he gives a lot of help with things that you, you wouldn't normally hear about on a day-to-day basis. I think... Um, the news is also quite interesting, but yeah, I think it's, it's a good, it's a good program. Um, and what don't you like about the BBC? Um, I would probably say there's too many channels. There's too many of them. There's quite a lot of BBC One, BBC Two, BBC Three. There's too many BBCs. Should just stick to one and just leave it at that, really. What about all the extra radio stations and TV channels? You just said. Um there are too many of them to choose from. Do you think, in a way, that the BBC is spreading itself too thin? I think so, yeah. I think they need to just stick to what they're good at, just keep to one or two basic things and let people decide if they want to watch BBC or something else, really. I think I like a lot about BBC. What don't you like about it? What don't I like about it? To be honest, I really don't know. I think I, I, think I love BBC, yeah. Do you mind if I ask you where you come from? I'm from Peterborough, but originally I'm from <laughs> Kurdistan, east of Turkey, which is Turkey. What do you think the BBC does best? EastEnders, sports, match of the day. Anything else? Mm, no adverts. What about the radio stations? What radio stations on the BBC do you listen to and why? None, because I listen to... You don't listen to any radio at all? Only pirate radio. What do you think the BBC doesn't do so well? I mean, do you, are they, do you think it's spreading itself really thin by having loads and loads of channels, or...? I don't really know. They need, like, a few more channels, I think. Like, they need to show more sports and stuff like that. What do you think of the BBC? 
I think he does a pretty good job. It's entertaining, um, a lot of information, good quality programmes. It seems to cover all my, all my interests. It's got a good website, probably a too detailed website. I think the plans to cut some of the bits of the website down are uh, probably a good idea. I think until digital radio is around as well, what I've heard of Six Music's good, but, you know, I can't listen to it in the car or anywhere else. Voices from the street telling us what they like and what they don't about the BBC. In the studio, we have the deputy editor of MediaGuardian.co.uk, Stephen Brook. Stephen, thanks for joining us. Is it an understatement to say that these cuts represent the biggest shake-ups in the BBC's 88-year history? I don't think that is an understatement, because if we look at the history of the BBC, it's been one of continual, steady growth. And there's been a growth spurt over the past decade, where we now have two extra digital TV channels and a lot more digital radio channels. So the decision to cut Six Music and the Asian Network uh, won't save them a lot of money in terms of specific budget, but the other really big cut is the downsizing of the website, which is a, a massive media presence and does have a very large budget. So I think, yes, that's correct. Why have these come about? Basically, I think that there is a consensus certainly outside the BBC amongst its rivals and also amongst the politicians that the BBC is too large, it's doing too many things, it's being too constrictive uh, on other media companies. And we're not just talking about other television and radio services now, but media companies such as The Guardian, which have websites that uh, compete with the BBC, if you like, for eyeballs. So because of that incredible growth that the BBC has um, undertaken in, in the past decade, not so much in terms of employee numbers, but the number of different services and different types of media that it's got into, I think that the BBC has realised with the potential change of government in a few short months that it might face a much tougher, say we say, political climate for it to operate in. So it's preemptive to a certain extent. It is preemptive. The Conservative Party spokespeople on the media, the Culture Secretary, Shadow Culture Secretary Jeremy Hunt, has been quite bellicose against the BBC, uh, although he does seem to have moderated his uh, animosity in the past couple of months. But I think we can see that Mark Thompson, the BBC Director General, is very much jumping before he's pushed. And by doing it now, the BBC can be the master of its own destiny in that it can cut the services that it wants to. And the BBC Asian Network and Six Music have very small audiences relative to the other BBC radio networks. Uh, and it's clearly decided that they are expendable. What's going to happen to the people who work on these stations and channels? Well, there's predictions that there could be job losses of up to 600 people. The BBC is at the very start of this process, and the proposed cuts haven't been approved by the BBC Trust, so they're not set in stone yet. BBC Trust might say, yes, we're going to implement them or only implement some of them. Uh, so it could be 600 people out of their jobs. The unions are very unhappy and are talking about strike action. We should remember this comes on the two previous rounds of job losses where thousands of people left the corporation and they go back sort of about sort of four or five short years. How wise are these decisions? There's been a huge outpouring of public support, particularly for Six Music and for Asian Network. I think that the BBC... It's difficult to say how wise they are. It depends on which side of the fence well, you, you sit said, on. Well, uh, you said earlier that they're not going to save a huge amount of money. Yeah, that's true. The budgets for those particular stations are a lot smaller than the bigger 
brasher mainstream stations for want of a better word like radio one and radio two i think that you know the bbc does what a sing a signal to its rivals and the, and the wider world that it has taken their complaints about massive expansion seriously i think they probably think that they can afford to alienate fans of six music and the asian network because they're not very numerous the you know but they're very well organized and the very effective campaigners who are now trying to save the service. So we've got to wait and see whether the BBC Trust heeds their protest or not. What advice would you give to Mark Thompson finally? I think that the Mark Thompson is correct that he does have a decision to make and he does have to decide what is important. It's interesting because if you talk to the public and the consumers and users of the BBC, then it has very high approval ratings for the types of output that it delivers, yet it does seem to be mired in controversy. And I think that a smaller, better BBC is what Mark Thompson needs to be aiming for. And I think that probably the announcement he's made about cuts is a step in the right direction. Stephen Brook from MediaGuardian.co.uk talking about the Night of the Long Knives at the BBC. When Manchester United lifted the Carling Cup at the weekend, a section of their fans sported green and yellow scarves and flags. This use of the club's original colours is the focal point for a long-running protest against the way the club has been run by its American owners, the Glazer family. Now, a group of super-rich supporters calling themselves the Red Knights have vowed to ride to the club's rescue. Our sports news correspondent is Owen Gibson. So the Red Knights are a group of sort of well-connected and very wealthy Manchester United fans who uh, oppose the, the Glazers and their ownership and their ownership model and want to see a new model whereby the supporters have more of a say. And so what they're going to try and do is, is buy the club. But they're very, they've stressed today that they're very early stages of that and it's going to be a long, drawn-out process, I think. Now, there are a bunch of financiers from, uh, among other places, Goldman Sachs, mm. and they reckon they can raise a billion pounds between them. Mm. Well, this is one of this is one of the slight ironies of the of the process is that you know kind of a lot of the talk recently has been about you know debt in football, supporters protesting against kind of the role of of high finance in in football, and here you've got a, a group of uh, financiers, uh, very wealthy, who who from companies like as you say Goldman Sachs, Freshfields, Finsbury, the PR group, who who want to but they want to use they say they want to use their 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 power and their and their ability to attract this funding for for good reasons if you like and to and to put in place a structure that would give the fans the final say over all the big decisions at, at Old Trafford. So it's more of a Robin Hood initiative, sort of going in and giving something back to the poor. Well, that's exactly Manchester United fans. Well, they are the, the price of the season tickets now, yeah. Um, but I think, yeah, that's absolutely their goal is to is is to portray themselves as this as this as this group who are yeah who are riding to the rescue of this fan base who are under the cosh of this restrictive owners who keep putting up ticket prices and won't invest any money back in the team. Now obviously there are two reasons why they're unpopular with fans. Are there more reasons why everyone hates the Glazers? Well, there's the ticket prices, there's the fact that they loaded all this how debt. How much is a ticket price? How much is a ticket? A, a ticket a season ticket price have doubled since the Glazers took over. Right. Um and you know, from a fairly low base, it has to be said, but mm. but they have doubled, to and what? and so an average, so there's a range, but I think an average season ticket at Old Trafford is something around six hundred and fifty pounds now, but but that's still relatively cheap when compared to some of the London clubs like Arsenal and Chelsea. I mm. mean, um, what what the Glazers did is they went in, they spotted that actually 
Manchester United was quite underpowered in some ways in terms of kind of making more money, wringing ever, ever yet more money out of the fans, out of doing commercial deals overseas and so on. So they've done all that. They've made more revenue, but mm-hmm. they've also piled more and more debt onto the club and that has to be paid for and that has to be paid for out of the revenues made by the club. So the argument of the fans is the money's not been reinvested in the team and they're effectively paying to pay back the loans that the Glazers took out to buy the club in the first place. I mean, despite the financial woes, the team itself is doing fairly mm. well. I mean, it's doing very well. So the you know, the business mm. stuff and all the boardroom wrangles that are going on, that's not translating onto the pitch. And surely that should be the concern of the fans? Well, not at the moment, but I think that's one of the interesting things about the, the movement, if you like, and the debate is that the fans' protests have continued even while they've been doing so well on the pitch. And in fact, they've been successful at, at a sort of, you know, hitherto unknown level over the last sort of mm. three or four years since the Glazers took over. But I think you know everyone involved in the uh, Green and Gold campaign and involved with the Red Knights have been saying that that's happened despite the Glazers rather than because of them. And at some point a reckoning is going to come when you can't afford to reinvest in the team and the, the performance is going to start to slide. Paul and when that us. happens... Well, I don't think we go. I don't think they'd ever go quite that far, but they would be. But there would be certainly a reckoning. I mean, the difference between Portsmouth and Manchester United is Manchester United remains a money-making machine. Mm. You know, they are one of the biggest clubs in the world. They're the third biggest revenue generators in the world after Real Madrid and Barcelona. So they're always going to make that money. The, the argument of the fans is that money is not being put to good use at the moment because that money is going to service the Glazers' debt rather than going back into the team or helping keep ticket prices down. Owen Gibson, our sports news correspondent, explaining the ins and outs of football, finance and fandom at Manchester United. Guardian Daily. News and reports from around the world. After months of negotiations between broadcasters and the three main political parties, we're finally going to see live televised debates between Gordon Brown, David Cameron and Nick Clegg in the run-up to the general election. It's a first for British politics, and our chief political correspondent, Nick Watt, has more. It's a pretty significant moment. This has never happened in British political history. Uh, 50 years after we had the first television presidential debates in the United States of America, we're going to have our own slightly more modest version in this country in the general election. What will happen is over three consecutive weeks during the general election campaign, the leaders of the three main parties, Gordon Brown, David Cameron and Nick Clegg, will face 90 minutes of questions from a moderator, a senior journalist on the three television channels, that's ITV, Sky and the BBC, but also significantly questions from the audience. Why has it taken so long to get to this? Well, I suppose you could say that in this country, we don't have a presidential system, technically. Technically, at a general election, you vote for the MP, and then whichever party has the most number of MPs, hey, the leader of that party becomes prime minister. So we don't technically have a presidential system. But the reason why it hasn't happened is that usually somebody, one of the leaders of the party, has a great deal to lose. Uh, But this time it has happened, and it's happened for two very simple reasons. Uh, The first reason is that there is a general agreement that the entire British political system was brought into ill repute by the expenses scandal of last summer. And every party, which obviously tried to attack each other in that, they agreed on one thing, we've got to try and get the political system closer to the people. And this is a very important way of doing it. That's the first reason. The second reason is that all the political parties all agreed that Barack Obama ran a fantastic campaign, both in the primaries and in the main presidential election last year. 
Uh, they all said, we'd like to have a bit of that. Now, what did Barack Obama do? He had an endless number of TV debates in the Democratic primaries, then those two television debates against John McCain, who was the Republican candidate. So it was a bit difficult for our political leaders, leaders to say, wasn't that a fantastic general election in the United States? bit difficult for them to say that and then not take part in one of the key elements of that, which is television debates. Are we going to get any of that American razzle-dazzle? Well, I'm not sure there'll be a huge amount of razzle-dazzle. And actually, in uh, in the US, the uh, debates in the primaries were quite exciting. But the actual sort of debates between McCain and Obama, they weren't quite so exciting. Uh, some people have been saying, some of those involved in the negotiations, and they have been very lengthy, the negotiations, to agree the format of, uh, of these debates. Some have said there's a danger that they've been negotiated to death, that the rules are going to be too restrictive. But on the other hand, um, you c it could be lively. It could be exciting. Each of the debates has to be dedicated to a particular theme, domestic economy and foreign. But in each case, it'll just be half of the 90 minutes will be to that. The other half will be to a live issue. And the second thing is it won't just be questions from the senior journalist, Alastair Stewart for, the I for ITV, Adam Bolton for Sky, and I think it's David Dimbleby uh, for the BBC. Yes, it, it, won't, it won't. It won't just be questions from them. It will also be questions from the audience. And that could be quite exciting. And shouldn't forget that the leaders will know what the theme is, but they won't know what the questions are. If you were a betting man, Nick, who would you put a tenor on to come off best? Well, it's very difficult. Uh, you must assume that David Cameron is the most accomplished media performer uh, of them all. Gordon Brown can be a bit awkward and Nick Clegg is quite new to the game. But then you've got to factor in the expectation. The expectation is that David Cameron will do, will do brilliantly. The expectation is that Gordon Brown might have another one of those great YouTube moments, which was, uh, to put it politely, an unfortunate performance. But because that's the expectation, if David Cameron comes in slightly below that and Gordon Brown comes in slightly above that, well, then maybe we'll say, didn't Gordon Brown do well? So it's quite difficult to tell how it'll work out. That was Nick Watt in Westminster. Hello, I'm Tom Clark and presenter of Politics Weekly. My co-presenter, Allegra Stratton, and I are taking our show on the road in the run-up to the election. First stop will be Manchester with our top columnists, Polly Toynbee, Michael White and John Harris. Come along and hear the programme being recorded and pitch questions to them yourselves. Tickets are £5 and to reserve places, email us at politics.weekly at guardian.co.uk. Fans of fashion film spoofs everywhere will be delighted to hear that work has started on Zoolander 2. A follow-up to the 2001 original starring Ben Stiller as male model Derek Zoolander, who is as really, really good-looking as he is stupid. His name is Zoolander. Derek Zoolander. He's almost too good looking. International male supermodel. The style and the hair, you know, it's almost like the new afro for the white man. But behind those eyes yeah! is a highly trained man of action. Zan Brooks, Guardian film writer, is in the studio. Zan, Zoolander 2, is that a really good idea? Um, that remains to be seen, but... I guess that the weird thing about Zoolander is it's one of these films that is great after the fact. When it came out in, in 2001, it kind of died, really. 
Um, partly, I think its box office was affected um, by the fact that it was released in the US immediately after 9-11, when perhaps people weren't on in the market for a kind of frivolous fashion comedy. But it is one of those films that people seem to have rediscovered later on, and maybe it was a bit too ahead of its time. You mean it was too forward-thinking and visionary when predicting that a fashion designer would base a collection inspired by the homeless? Who could have imagined <laughs> such a thing? Um, and so, yeah, it, it, was, it was so now that it was just too now for the audiences of the now, if you see what I mean. I, I do. Do you think uh, Ben Stiller is cashing in on its cult success and trying to make himself funny again? Uh, I think Ben Stiller is at a weird point in his career where a part of him really wants to go dark and he wants to do these sort of deep naturalistic movies. Um, he had a film in Berlin a couple of weeks ago called Greenberg, which is by Noah Baumbach, who did uh, the, the Squid and the Whale, um, which is a sort of midlife crisis drama. And it's, it's Ben Stiller trying to show that he's a serious actor. Um, in the meantime, I guess... Which he's is got what a... he was trying to do in Tropic Thunder, sort of. S well, he was kind of spoofing that in Tropic Thunder, wasn't he? Mm. In the meantime, I guess he's got to pay the bills. So he's doing another Meet the Parents film. He did Night at the Museum 2. Um, and so now maybe he's doing Zoolander 2, which I think is probably his most fondly regarded film. What's the key to a successful sequel? I mean, you just talked about Night at the Museum 2 and... Meet the Parents, which must be the third instalment now? Yeah, the third instalment. I mean, the key to a successful sequel, in, as far as the studios are concerned, is whether it makes more money than the, the, the first one. film. Um, for, for us chin-stroking aesthetes, um, it's if it works <laughs> and if it's better. Um, you know, his whole thing with Zoolander is that he's saying, let's see how fashion's changed in 10 years. But, I, I mean... Has it changed, really? I mean, isn't it just as ludicrous as it always has been? And also, wasn't there a film about a comedy about fashion out last year, um, Bruno, which seemed to kind of lampoon it? So my suspicion is maybe that it's trying to jump on, on Bruno's catwalk a little bit. Zan Brooks there, and that's it for today. The producer was Phil Maynard. I'm Riazat Butt. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>